Welcome to the Legacy Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Tommy Miller. For more information about Legacy Church, please visit us online at www.legacychurchclm.org. Matthew 25, verse 14 and 28. This is what I believe that we're going to see today. This, this passage is a very, very popular passage that we refer to as the parable of the talents. We're not going to preach this in its context necessary, necessarily as an entire lesson. Rather, we're going to highlight the third servant. And by highlighting the third servant in this passage, we are actually going to expose something that I and many other people refer to as the spirit of religion. Everybody say religion. Religion will send you to hell. Religion is not a good thing. As a matter of fact, when Paul used the word religion, he said that the following of the laws has an appearance of self-imposed religion. Self-imposed religion. Do you know what the word religion means? It's actually a back thing, or a bad thing. Do you know the little blocks that your kids play with that when you step on, you question all the decisions you've ever made in your life? What are those called? Legos. Lego is a Greek word that means to put back together, which is where they get their name. Re-lego, excuse me, lego means to put together, re means to put back together. So the word religion is actually the process of you trying to pick yourself up off the ground. Religion, it's you trying to pick up all the broken pieces of your life and try to fix it. Religion is not a good thing. There is a spirit of religion that actually runs prevalent in the church and it does two things. It disqualifies you. You ready? It disqualifies you from being who God called you to be by putting an insurmountable amount of pressure on your performance and make sure that you don't think that you're ever good enough, ever clean enough, ever sanctified enough to step into the things that God has called you to so you stay ineffective for the kingdom. Do you think Satan would love for you to step into the destiny and make the noise that he's called you to make? Probably not. But oftentimes, as good, well-meaning Christians, he can't use sin to distract you anymore because you really don't want anything to do with it. So rather, in his wisdom, in his cunning deceit, he uses something else. It's called religion. The process of you thinking the pressure is on yourself to put yourself back together. And plot twist, it'll never happen, which is why Jesus had to die. If you could have fixed your own problems, Jesus died in vain. Right? The second thing that the spirit of religion is famous for, and if you look throughout classic Pentecost for the last 20 years, the spirit of religion is famous for waiting on God to do something that's your job. You with me? People were praying 2,000 years ago for revival. And every time Jesus was asked when revival would come, he'd say, you tell me. He said, it's up to you. The moment you get the revelation of your identity and destiny, revival will come. You're not supposed to pray for it. You're supposed to cause it. So we see something in this passage. I'm going to read it straight through so we can get the context. But then, like I said, we're going to highlight this third servant. We're going to talk about him today. Matthew 25, 14 says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man that traveled to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. 
To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to their own ability. Immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug it in the ground and hid the Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents and said, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides those. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. And look, I've gained two more talents besides them. And his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of of your Lord. We're going to stop there just to, to kind of set a foundation. Jesus preached one message. Jesus preached the message of the kingdom over and over and over again. The main message was not the born again message. The main message was not the salvation message. The main message was not the healing message. All of those fit under the umbrella of the kingdom message. Jesus spent three and a half years saying the kingdom of God is like And the insight that he's trying to deliver us in this parable is the kingdom of God is like a God that came and equipped his servants with everything they need for life and godliness. And then he left. And one day he'll come back to find out what you did with what he gave you. What he's trying to disclose to us is that the future and hope of the world is not in his hands. It's in yours. The church is this. Try to wrap your mind around this. I got in trouble for saying this once, so please follow me. Don't tweet it. If you don't get it, don't tweet it. Jesus was the son of Mary. Christ was the son of God. Mary's son made God's son legal to have authority on this planet. The Bible says that Christ is in me and that Christ is in you. Therefore, we as the church are the continued incarnation of Christ. The continued incarnation of Christ, meaning what people experienced for three and a half years when Jesus the Christ was here should be what they experience on a much larger level as it pertains to to receiving and experiencing the kingdom. Because Christ was in one man at that time. One. Now Christ is in all of you. So what he says is he delivered to you his goods. And then he left. And then one day he'll come to settle accounts and say, all right, what did you do with what I gave you? Now, this third servant is the servant that is bound in religion. And this man is experiencing both of the things that we established religion accomplishes. One, it disqualifies you. It puts you in wrong relationship with God. Two, it causes you to wait on God to do things that you're supposed to do. Amen? Let's get to the third servant. It says, Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew that you were a hard man. 
reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you haven't scattered seed, and I was scared. So I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Look, I still have it. But the Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and you lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I haven't sown, you ga- I gather where I don't scatter seed, you should have at least deposited my money with the bankers, and then I would come back and receive interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to somebody else. All right, what just happened to this guy? One of the most important things to grasp here is that this servant had a confession about the master. The confession was, I knew that you were tough. I knew that you could make something out of nothing. And I knew that you can gather uh, seed, excuse me, gather fruit from where you haven't sown any seed. The master didn't deny those facts. He's like, I can make things out of nothing. I can gather where I haven't scattered seed. Wouldn't that be great news for somebody that's on my team? Religion sets you at odds with God. Therefore, when you see his holiness, his vastness, you'll be afraid rather than being excited. The gazelle is terrified of the alpha male lion because it's convinced that it's lunch. But there's always this lioness curled up next to his side. Why? Is it because he's not dangerous? Absolutely not. He's no less dangerous, but they're in right relationship. So you can have the right information about God, but unless you refuse, or when you refuse to affirm the right information about yourself, you'll be in wrong relationship. Follow me? Religion always has you working for something. I need to do this. 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 And then you've got this laundry list of I need to do's, and it seems to be ever growing. And and ever deepening in its complication. And then you never get to a position where you feel comfortable and where you feel that you've been joined to the one who reaps where he doesn't sow and gathers where he doesn't scatter seed. His his terror, his strength, his fierceness doesn't become an asset to you until you know you're his. Religion won't do that for you. The other thing religion does when it disqualifies you is the same thing it did to this man. Lord, I know that you can handle it, so I didn't do anything. Am I right? A lot of well-meaning Christians don't have a revelation of their identity and their destiny, so what they do is they sit in prayer closets and ask God to do things that they're supposed to do. Father, I'd ask that you just save my family. Listen, there's nothing wrong with those petitions, but what are you doing to help? Have you loved them unconditionally? Have you stopped judging them? Have you stopped giving them a hard time every time they walk in your door? Have you stopped um, becoming the, 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 the Christian nag that none of them want to be around? Have we taken accountability for what we show them as far as who Jesus is, and then we go to our prayer closet and ask God to fix everything we just jacked up? Right? <laughs> oh no prayer closets are fantastic everybody needs a prayer closet prayer closets are absolutely fantastic listen let me let, let me expound just so nobody thinks prayer closets are bad there's two kinds of prayer that we see in the new testament there are prayers of command which is where you say be healed and then there are prayers of petition when you ask God for help. Both of them are biblical, both of them are necessary, and both of them should be active in the life of a New Testament believer. 
But if your prayer doesn't lead you to action, it's hypocrisy. There's nothing wrong with the prayer. There's nothing wrong with the prayer. Everything right about the prayer. But follow up by trying to become the solution that you just prayed for. Make sense? She is. She, as a matter of fact, let me, let me give credit where credit's due. These two ladies are the daughters of thunder. I'm not kidding you. Give them a hand. They're, 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 they're leading people to the Lord in a radical way everywhere they go. They, they go have lunch at, at bars on purpose so they can meet people that aren't church people. And then they, they get food donated to them. I'm not trying to steal your blessing. Listen, they act like Jesus all the time. They do. And, and listen, if, if y'all, like, not, and I don't mean this in any disrespect, but not in the way that you would expect church folk to get lost people. I mean, they're radical in their endeavors to reach the lost and glorify Jesus. Every time they ask us to come minister to them, we leave ministered to. Amen? Thank you, ladies. <laughs> it's awesome. And what's funny is they have such a blast doing it. <laughs> High-fiving the whole time. It's amazing. Oh, man. Okay. So, let's talk about this. Religion will keep you from accomplishing what God has designed for you to accomplish. It's exceptional to be considered the vessel that God designed to, to bring the world to him. In 1 Corinthians, it said that he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That means that the people who were coming to God were going to come through our invitation. Say invitation. One of the things I wanted to share with you today is this. How many of you ever seen Legacy Church advertisement? Facebook and, and print and stuff like that. Guess how many people come to church because of advertisement? 2% of all the people that walk through our doors, 2% of them come because of advertisement. Guess how many people come because of how amazing the preacher is? Come on. 110. No, I'm just kidding. Here, legitimate, legitimate. 6% came because they heard about the preacher. 6%. There's a, hold on, there's one more. Guess how many come to church because of organized evangel, uh, evangelism, like a, a day at the park, or going to a sporting event and handing out things, or a family nights. Guess how many come because of those? 6%. 2% from advertisement, 6% because the pastor's good, 6% from, from organized evangelism. Guess how many come because somebody that they're friends with or somebody in their family ministered to them and invited them to church? The rest! 86% come because somebody said, will you come to church with me? The system that God designed for you and I to be salt and light is the system that works. He didn't say pay for Facebook advertising and, and reconcile the world unto me. That's ridiculous. My goal is to not need advertising anymore. You hear me? That's up to you. 86% of people that walk through the doors are here because somebody that sits in the seats invited them. Now, you ready for the next statistic? 70% of people that are invited to church come. 
Like you've got great odds, great odds, because you're not, they, they don't really know what they're in store for yet. Especially when you have a good excuse like free food or something. Just come hang. Right? And then they get nailed with the gospel and their life changes forever. But God placed the responsibility to reach the lost and grow the local church in its own hands. Religion will convince you that you're supposed to wait for people to come in your door. Christianity will tell you to get out of the door and go find them. Go find them. Jesus said, I've came, come to seek and to save that which is lost. Do you know what seeking involves? Getting out your church pew. Good stuff? All right, so let's talk about this. Jesus speaks some of the most famous words in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to stay in Matthew chapter 5 for the rest of the message. And we're going to start in verse 13 and go to verse 16. It's only three verses, but it's, let me, let me put it this way. It's simple. What, what we're going to cover is extremely elementary, but if you get the point, it's extremely profound. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how will the earth be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city that's set on a hill that can't be hidden. Nor do they put a light under a, under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine so before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen? We're going to break this down. The first thing that Jesus wants us to see is that you are what he says you are, whether you like it or not, right? So he comes to a group, just to set the setting, this is in Matthew 5, this is a place that they call the the Sermon on the Mount, or the Beatitudes. So what happened was he was traveling with the apostles, sat down to teach, and he drew thousands of people to himself. That's what happened. So he doesn't know if they're saved, if they're unsaved, if they're Greeks, if they're Romans, if they're Jews, he's just talking. And he looks at all of them, he says, you're salt, so the identity that he bestowed on them wasn't according to their own opinion of themselves. He was, he was communicating to them that they are salt no matter, what they, no, no matter what they think. They have been bestowed an identity that they are the responsible ones to season the earth. He says, but what do you taste like? He gave us a confession and then a question. And he said, people, when they experience you, have a flavor gauge. People, when they come into your presence, have a flavor gauge. Are you salt and light or are you salty and lit? That was funnier than you thought. (laughs) Being salt and being salty are two different things. He says, if salt loses its flavor, what's it good for? Meaning, you are salt, but if you're not acting like salt, it doesn't do anything. It won't accomplish anything. Jesus doesn't doesn't say some of you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say you could be salt if you tried. He declares unapologetically that his plan that he designed approves and includes humans as the conduit for bringing good flavor to the earth. What do you guys, how do you guys feel inviting people to church? 
Raise your hand if you're nervous about it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> then why? <laughs> why are there empty seats? Nobody, nobody raised their hand. Oh, maybe it's a crappy church. No, never. Do you know what an invite can do? I know it's, it's not like the crux of Christian evangelization. It's not by any means. But do you know what an invite can do? Raise your hand if you're here today and you were invited. Heck yeah, that's awesome. That's what an invite can do. Listen, my son, he was 11 years old and he was the most rambunctious, insane, dis, listen, disrespectful and extremely smart are two of the worst things that a kid can be. And that was him. My son... The first time he met my dad, my dad said, what do you do? He said, I'm a plant manager. And he said, that must be terrible being a gardener. He was seven. And he said other things, but I can't say them in church. But do you know my son had a neighbor that was 11 years old named Adam Price. And Adam had a tear-filled, burning heart burden to see my son saved at 11 years old. So he invited him to church, and obviously he couldn't get to church because I wasn't going. So then he's like, hey, there's a youth camp this weekend. Why don't you come to youth camp? So Shannon and I were like, uh, you, you mean that we have a babysitter for three days? Yeah, we'll pack. <laughs> get out, right? Shannon and I were like, we, we were on the brink of divorce. We were drinking all the time. We were, we were in bad shape. And my son gets invited to church camp, and he comes back, and he's a totally different kid. He gave his life to the Lord. He respected us, and we didn't deserve it. He loved us, and then finally, he invites us to church. My son invites us to church. Listen, this is how he did it, though. If you don't take me to church, I'm moving in with my biological dad. Like, well, hey, you know? So I went to church because my son invited me to church. Because he had his life changed before I did. You ready? And then within three weeks, four weeks, my son, myself, and four weeks later, my wife got saved. And four weeks after that, we were so passionate about the gospel, we knew absolutely nothing. I didn't even know there was two testaments in the Bible. I didn't even know there was multiple translations. I didn't know that, that Genesis was the first book. I knew nothing. All I knew is that everybody needed what I had. That's all I knew. Come on. You know what I'm talking about. So we'd have $7 in our bank account. No joke. I remember this clear as day. $7 in our bank account. 15 kids in town that needed to get to church. So we'd line up at the gas pump, prepay seven bucks, drip two bucks in the first car, two bucks in the second car, two bucks in my, my son's car. We drove three cars to church every single Sunday, and we filled multiple rows with kids from broken homes in Port Washington every single Sunday. We knew nothing. All we needed is they need what he's saying. And then those 15 kids turned into a 40, uh, 35 to 40 teenagers youth group that started in my house. And then from my house, it went to Yorksville Christian Fellowship. From Yorksville Christian Fellowship, some of those teenagers came and became the leaders of CLM Dover. CLM Dover became Legacy Church. This church started with an invite. You have no idea what your invite's going to turn into. You have no idea what your invite's going to turn into. Amen. Amen. 
The people you know need hope, they need save, they need what you have, and God has one method, one method of bringing it to a lost and dying world, and that's you. That's you. Listen, Isaiah chapter 6, you don't have to turn here, I just want to talk about it. All of us have gone through the Isaiah experience. All of us need to recognize the Isaiah experience. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his glory filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two they flew. One said to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Understand this process is a process that we've all been through. It just needs recognized. The moment that you see who God is, you have no justified response other than, Oh my God! There's a lot wrong with me, right? He said, I am a man of unclean lips. The moment he saw the holiness of the, of the Lord, it reflected on him and exposed everything that was wrong. That's what holiness does. But then the second revelation he had, he said, and what's wrong with me is wrong with everybody else. And then he had this experience where an angel came, supernaturally purged him of his sin and iniquity. He realized that the solution to his brokenness was found in the supernatural grace of God. And after he had seen his condition and the condition of the people he lived amongst, and he was able to see that the condition he had had a solution that was only found in God, God said, who can I send? He's like, send me what that I have they need need because I was just like them once but you touched me you cleansed me you purged my sin and you took away my iniquity you can send me and I'll tell them that's the Isaiah experience the experience that we have with God will always drive us to wanting everybody else to experience what we've experienced the second thing that Jesus said is If salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, one of the things that that religion does, and I'm, I'm going a specific direction because I really believe this is the word for the hour. Religion teaches you that it's bad to draw attention to yourself. Right? As a matter of fact, we had a, a young man that was uh, kind of helping the worship team at one time. And he said, uh, he said, Tommy, don't, don't play guitar solos. I said, uh, shut up and leave. <laughs> no, <I'm> just kidding. <laughs> I didn't really say that. He said, it takes the attention off of God and puts it on you. I said, do you realize that my Bible tells me to prophesy with my instrument? That I speak the word of the Lord with those strings that are in my hands? I said, and I couldn't play like that without the anointing of the Lord. 
that, that the gifting that I have as a musician isn't in opposition to the greatness of God. It's to his credit. And if we're really going to reach the world, then this false humility garbage has to go. It has to go. Because Katy Perry is singing to 150,000 people because she confesses that she sold her soul to the devil. Yet the vocalists that we have, not, not comparing them or anything, it's not because it's my wife either, but if given the opportunity to drop the anointing on 150,000 people, how do you suppose those people would leave? Changed and transformed. As a matter of fact, the way Jesus prayed, how many of you would be brave enough to pray this prayer? Father, glorify your son that I can glorify you. Put me in a place where people can see me. Anoint me in a way that people can't deny your excellence. And then every time somebody comes to me and says, I want what you have, I'll tell them where I get it. Religion will put you in a corner. I have so many stories, and it just hurts me to say, and I can't really say them because we're live. But when you pray for somebody, listen, how ridiculous is it to think that God wants to humble you at the sake of someone else's life? I used to have these well-meaning old preachers, not in our fellowship. Tom Klassner and David Barlock have, have been emphatically behind me. But when you talk to the uh, like seniors, 90, 95, they always teach you not to preach too good. I'm not kidding. Don't preach too good or God's going to have to come humble you. That's garbage. That's garbage. Nobody's impressed. <laughs> Nobody's impressed by a bride that's not worth stopping, looking at, and listening to. When the church starts being mocked by sinners instead of being marveled at, it's because we've lost our flavor. Amen? Y'all quiet this morning. Religion has taught us if we draw attention to ourselves that it has to be out of selfish ambition and pride. Therefore, as to not draw the opinions of religious people to ourselves, we just sit in a corner and hope that God does something on our behalf. That if people notice us, we're drawing attention away from God. Thus causing Christians to mistake, listen, excellence for pride and calling laziness humility. What Jesus is saying is you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Those those statements came on the tail of him saying, I am the light of the world. He relinquished his responsibility to shine in the dark place to his church. And he said, if you don't step in, nothing's going to get any brighter. If you don't keep your flavor, nothing's going to taste any better. It's not up to God now. It's up to the people that God delegated the responsibility to, to be his continued incarnation on this planet. God is excited about your success. He's excited about your promotion. He's excited that your investment portfolio does better than everybody else's. He's excited that you have a wicked ability to be the best at your job. He's not concerned about you becoming too prideful because you are the display of His excellence in every area of your life. Don't let anyone steal your flavor. 
Don't let insecurity, rejection, tradition, or fear, or the fear of the opinions of religious people keep you from inheriting what God has promised you. (laughs) There's something in my notes that I feel like I have to mention. Just I have to turn my attention towards a certain group here. This happened to me, this is why I'm mentioning it. Do you remember a time in your life that you were far more vibrant as a Christian than you are now? Do you remember a time in your life when you were way more excited, you'd go through way more trouble to make sure that somebody got to church than you do now? I believe today is a day of repentance. That today is a day that you recognize the instances that stole your flavor and get it back and taste good. Get it back and taste good. It's exciting, man. There's nothing more exciting than doing what God's called you to do. There's nothing, listen, there's nothing more exciting. People don't reject me in Walmart. They don't. It's happened like two, three times. It's happened to my wife two, three times. When you ask to pray for people, most of them are so moved that they cry. A few of them, listen, I was, I was on a Volvo plant tour down in North Carolina. It was like a five-mile walk. Dude beside me, he just had a, a fused leg. And when we stopped, I asked if I'd pray for him. He got ticked, moved along. Oh, well, there's more fish in the sea. Right? You can't let those kind of experiences keep you from praying for the next person. Because the next person was out at the Amish flea market. He was a day, I told you about this, he was a day away from a knee knee replacement. And we prayed for him, and he was so terrified that he got healed that he ran. Did you hear that? (laughs) He ran. I was like, how's it feel? He's like, fine. And then he ran downstairs to the second floor because he was so scared that his knee that hadn't worked in years now worked. And then we saw him on the first floor and he ran to the second one. He didn't want any more of that. But listen, (laughs) God was excited. He met Jesus. That's all I'm there to do. Oh boy. Okay. Third thing that Jesus said, Jesus passed on his title as light to his children. Which is why they call God the Father of Lights. He says, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Jesus proclaimed, listen to this. He said these words after extending mercy to the Samaritan woman. You understand that? He met a woman in Samaria that was not a lady that you'd take home to mom. She even knew that he was too good for her company. He said, what dealings do Jews have with Samaritans? He's like, why are you even at my well? And he said, if you knew who it is that asks you, you'd ask me for a drink because I'd give you living water and you'd never be thirsty again. How many of you know there's a lot of thirsty women today? I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not trying to be funny. You know what thirsty means? <laughs> no, don't define it like that. I mean, they have an unmet need and they're trying to find it in places that won't work. It's not going to come in endless cycles of bad relationships. It's not trying to jump back from the pansy guy to the tough guy. It's not going to work. You're not going to find it. You're thirsty for something else. You're thirsty for living water. And it only comes in the form of grace extended from the hand of Jesus. Listen, even his own disciples came back and said, hey, 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 teach, you know who that was? Yes, I know who it was, and I'm not ashamed that I was alone with her. I'm not ashamed that I extended her grace. I know that she's had five husbands, and I know that the person she's with now is somebody else's husband. He said, but here's the point, and this is the next thing he said. He said, I'm the light of the world, and if she follows me, she won't walk in darkness. 
That's when Jesus proclaimed he was the light of the world. And then he said, now, here's the torch. You're the light of the world. People like the woman at the Samaritan well need, need to experience unconditional love, grace, and forgiveness. And it's not going to come through something supernatural. It's going to come through seeing a Christian that treats them, not according to their performance, but according to their created value. He uses the same title he referred to himself as to tell us who we are, but this time there's more to it. He says, you're a city on a hill, meaning we're not just individual lights. We're a community of lights, meaning that this community is a community that can attract people that are broken and hurting. It's like a hospital for people that are addicted, people that are depressed, people that are suicidal. They can come into this city and find refuge. Because they're not just around a light. Now they're around a city that's full of lit people. And they won't be kicked out of this city. Because this city, <laughs> this city lights up dark things. If you know any dark people, just invite them here. Fourth thing Jesus said in this passage. He said, you don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. You put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Jesus never challenged you and I to be light. He told us that we were. The issue isn't to argue whether we are light or not. That's a given. But are we hidden? James said something, that, and I've, 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 I've said it before. James, in the book of James, has a passage that, that convicts me to the core on a regular basis. He said, if somebody comes up to you and says, I'm hungry and cold, and you pray for them that they would be filled and warmed. It sounds kind of noble, right? He said, your faith is dead. Your faith is dead. Give them food and give them a blanket and do something about their problem. That's why people hate Christians. They don't act like Jesus. No, but none of the sinners hated Jesus. But if we pray for cold people that they would supernaturally get warm, I doubt that prayer is going to be answered because it's your responsibility to give them something to keep them warm. Do you know Jesus went about meeting people's immediate needs before he ever spoke to them about eternity? I don't think we as a church have the right to speak to people about their eternal condition until we've shown them that we care about their temporal one. If they're hungry, we feed them. If they're cold, we clothe them. Jesus, when he was talking about judgment, he said, as you've done unto the least of these, you've done unto me. And he said, well, we do. He said, well, I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in jail, you came and visited me. And they said, when did we do that to you, right? Jesus said, as you've done unto the least of these, you've done unto me. Meaning we serve Jesus by serving people. Last thing, you guys can stand to your feet. Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. God is telling us that the way that God would be glorified is through you. John 15 says that, that we didn't choose him. He chose us and appointed us that we would bear fruit and that fruit would remain. And by this, he says, my Father is glorified that you would bear 
much fruit, meaning the life of a Christian is meant to be full of good works. It's meant to be a wake of healed and saved people in our path. Everywhere Paul went, he did ministry. He didn't leave a place. Listen, I sat, and I do it on a regular basis. I sit in Applebee's sometimes with a group of pastors, and we pray, and we eat, and we leave. And on a regular basis, I'm thinking, what would Jesus and Paul do if they were here? I have a captive audience of about 75 people that are sitting at a bar taking sips of triple sec. Do they need what I have, or am I going to enjoy my steak and bolt? I can tell you, sadly, that on a regular basis, it's the latter. But what opportunities are we taking? Listen, we're a light. Are we hidden? We're salt. Are we flavorless? We're a city. Are we on a hill? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The word good meant this. Beautiful. Handsome, excellent, eminent, choice, surpassing, precious, useful, suitable, commendable, admirable, beautiful to look at, shapely, magnificent, good, excellent in nature and characteristics and genuine. That's the biblical definition. That's the the, the description of the works that you and I are called to do. 